Welcome to Take Care. This is the podcast that helps you understand the background and habits of change makers. Host Rish Sharma and his guests give you the wisdom to help you learn a little more and get a bit better every episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Take Care. Today's guest is Jesse Darius, CEO of Darius & Company, a PR and branding agency working with iconic brands like Warby Parker, Lululemon, and many more. Welcome, Jesse. Really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. So I'd just like to start the conversation with, the, with everybody, all the guests that we have, and kind of just go into your backstory and kind of what led you to start Darius and company and, you know, start to work with all these brands that everybody reveres right now. Yeah. I mean, my, my background is a little meandering. I started my career uh, in politics. Mostly I I first started working at a small consulting agency, um, working on a mixture of different types of of clients and then um, worked on a succession of of campaigns, um, mostly on the presidential uh, level and, you know, uh, all Democratic campaigns and was, you know, a relatively junior spokesman, not a relative, I was a very junior spokesman on a bunch of, on a bunch of those campaigns. And, and after that, kind of found my way back to New York, um, working at a, a small, at the time, agency that's now called Sunshine Stacks. I helped build their crisis business and was doing mostly that when the technology movement started to take off again in New York in kind of 2005, 2006. And just by virtue of where I was and the firm and the types of work that we would see, kind of ended up working on a little bit of tech work naturally. Then met Ben Lear and, and Adam Rich as they were getting Thrillist off the ground and helped them do PR. And, and that led to a fateful phone call in the fall of 2008 from a friend of a friend um, who called me one day uh, after starting business school to tell me he had this idea to sell glasses online. And his name was Neil Blumenthal and he eventually built uh, Warby Parker, which was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've had the you know blessing to get to work with those guys since the very beginning. At first helping them with tech press and, and more of the social responsibility stuff and, and then expanding out and, and starting to help them more with their consumer facing work as well. And the idea for, for Daris came, you know, specifically from that work on Warby on you know working alongside all of the kind of really brilliant people that, that that Warby had collected to help you know build that company and watching Neil and Dave specifically and their approach to uh, talking with consumers and then and then telling larger stories about their company I thought it was uh, sort of an odd thing that they had to bring together all of these disparate partners even in PR at the time they had to bring in two firms to kind of help them because there was no one firm that could do the job effectively yeah. Um, and so the original idea for this place was, uh, why don't I build a place that would be able to service a company that looked and behaved like Warby Parker as a one-stop shop? 
And so that's why we started. And uh, we just happened to time it, the kind of early direct to consumer uh, brand development really well. And, and in succession, you know, we're, you know, super lucky as we, right as we started to work on Warby and then Harry's and Everlane and Reformation and mm-hmm. Glossier and my wife launched Lola. You know, we did hymns and a whole bunch of others. It's, it's, it's been a pretty amazing ride. That's, that's great to hear. So I'm just curious about your experience with working with political campaigns. I'm just curious to see, as somebody myself who's worked on political campaigns as well, if you find any translation between working with, on these political campaigns and working with these, these fast-moving startups. Well, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that all selling is selling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a lot of the stuff that we do and a lot of the tactics and strategy that we employ at Daris were born from kind of, you know, my experience in politics, but more importantly, watching other people with far more experience in politics. And so, you know, the, the, the very easy way to describe it is that the candidate, the product, the brand that has kind of two things generally always wins. First is a short, positive highly repeatable narrative mm-hmm. that uh, enables or empowers people to see themselves in that narrative mm-hmm. um, or to see what they can get out of that narrative on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the ability to um, define your opponent is incredibly important. And so to me, those kind of two things exist, whether you're selling a political candidate or you're selling, you know, rice aroni, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And you're still explaining to people in repetitive messaging why you're better and why you're better for them. Mm-hmm. And you're uh, explaining or trying to define who and what your opponent is or what the defining kind of, you know, what the, what the brand leader is or et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just defining yourself and defining your opponent. It doesn't matter what you're selling. Thanks for breaking that down. I think there's a, like you said, a good correlation between a selling and selling. You've mentioned in other interviews and other talks that you've given, like you work with your clients to develop a storytelling engine. How does that go about? Like, how do you approach that with a brand or somebody you're working to develop that, that's that storytelling engine? I mean, in large part, there has to be something intrinsic to one of the founders or somebody at the brand so that they're able to do that. I think it's very hard to replicate that in an agency, but mm-hmm. we tend to think of, we tend to think like the, the entire idea of direct to consumer is sort of a misnomer, you know, direct is a channel, but that channel has existed since the beginning of time. Yep. You know, people, you know, I, I kind of grew up buying from direct brands, you know, places like J crew and Abercrombie mm-hmm. and, but they've existed forever. I mean, you can go back and find Sears catalogs from the 1800s mm-hmm. and what actually changes that most of the companies that we've had the, you know, privileged to work on, care deeply about customer experiences. So they, they want to have a discussion with consumers as opposed to speaking at them. Yeah. And so they tend to be defined by certain characteristics. And one of them is the storytelling engine. And so what, you know, there's no way to describe what that is without talking about the first two, which is the first is that they all have positioning that's real, yeah. that's organic, that, that is, you know, that is honest. Um, they exist for a specific reason. And that reason isn't just like, I need to sell you stuff. The second is that they make products that honestly reflect that positioning. They're not just making stuff to make it. They only mm-hmm. make things when they can do it um, in an honest way that reflects who they are as a business. And the third out of the five is the storytelling engine. They're able 
to kind of continue to iterate their product or to create new products on the one hand, or to figure out different ways to tell stories about their positioning in some sort of repetitious way. So they're able to set up a cadence that works for them, whether it's four times a year or 24 times a year, Mm -hmm. um, where they're able to generate a story either through their product or through their positioning. And they're able to tell that story through all the channels that are helpful for them. One of them obviously is PR or earned, Mm -hmm. but organic social, paid social, radio, out of home, all the other channels. And then all of them exist and are able to tell these stories both digitally and in person in some way, shape or form. But for us, it's, you know, the, the most important thing is that, is that all the brands that we work with exist for an honest reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you have that and some version of product development, helping folks kind of tease out stories and try to look for stories is, is sort of the third thing. And it's building that muscle that helps brands figure out kind of how they're going to market. Is there a particular client of yours or an example that you think illustrates that the best in terms of just executing on, on creating that, that engine and then positioning the product very well or the brand very well. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're not even our client. We, we worked with them before, but I think Sweetery does this incredibly well. Mm-hmm. You know, they exist for this reason to help, you know, excite people through passion and purpose and, and food. They clearly um, exist to help farmers and to help, um, and to help, you know, to help farmers on the one hand, to help people eat healthy on the other. They do terrific kind of menu creation and storytelling through their menus. They do amazing partnerships that reflect their brand values, whether they're with chefs or with brands. And, and then they, they speak through their service and, and the things they give back to their community. And I always, it's a little self-serving for me to talk about our clients. So it's easier to talk about somebody that's not ours. Yep. But those guys do an incredible job um, kind of building stories that are repetitive, that are rich, that are deep, that are honest. And then that they're able to go back to consumers with repetitively. Okay. And in regards to just, just riff on sweet cream since you brought it up, you know, if a company was coming out and let's just say they wanted to like, I guess the competitor of theirs would be like a simple salad, which is a totally different positioning. How would you, how would a customer that's a new interest or a new vendor or company in this space that's a new a new uh, competitor to Sweetgreen, how would they assess their positioning relative to the market? Like how do new brands go about that when they're entering a new market and they're testing, right? I mean, it should be implicit in the reason that they, you know, that they chose to start their company in the first place. Um, Like they better have a pretty clear idea of why they started. And so typically speaking, the first bit of positioning that a brand does is just purely the pain point that caused the founder to start the company in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I've always had such problems with like uh, large company incubators and things like that, because they're almost trying to like, they're trying to figure out a new brand based on research. Mm-hmm. Often when, when, when what's birthed so many of the brands that are working today was a specific pain point to a specific person that then became articulatable through a brand and through the product that that brand produced. Mm-hmm. And so to me, you know, if you're launching a competitor to Sweetgreen, it, it should be because you think something is specifically missing there that you can add to the world. And that's why you exist. Mm-hmm. The challenge isn't like that first product or the first thing. It's the 10th. It's figuring out a way to iterate the reason you exist. Yeah. The purpose changes along the way. Well, it's not even that it changes, but it's going to evolve for sure. Yep. 
but you have to figure out like different manifestations of that purpose that are honest to it. Yeah. Um, yes. You know, you can't, yeah, you can't start doing different things just to do them if they're not honest to why you started in the first place. Yeah. I mean, a great way I look at it is like Amazon started doing books and now they've kind of evolved to sell everything. Right. As a, as a, because, because, because Amazon is a customer experience company. Yeah. Like, you know, and it doesn't matter if that customer experience is books or everyday consumables or the cloud, like they exist to like eliminate friction from people's lives. Yeah. And so if that's why they exist, then, you know, they have the ability to take that mission and interpret it through the widest possible lens, which is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree with that. And so prior to this whole circumstance that we're in with the COVID-19 that's currently undergoing, there was a big push by a lot of direct-to-consumer brands to do an online, offline presence. And this this whole thing has kind of really stopped retail in a lot of ways and you know, potentially could change consumers' behavior. Do you still bet brands should look to have an online and an offline experience? Should it be more selective? Should it, how, how should that, somebody look at that in this new world post, post-COVID? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I, I, what's going on right now is just, is tragic on, on a thousand different levels. Absolutely. The, the losses, the loss of life and, and the loss of economic means and all these other kind of terrible things. I, I do think in the long run, human behavior behavior tends to revert back to the mean. Okay. I do think it's going to take a while for restaurants and and stores to recover back to their their full potential. Yeah. But I do think they'll get there. And I do think that people still crave tactile experiences. And I don't think that's going to change. Okay. Um, you know, we tend to believe that that any brand today that's going to succeed um, needs to be able in our minds to build a direct relationship with customers. And we think the easiest way to do that is online. Mm-hmm. Um, and by direct, I don't mean that they have to acquire the customers directly. They're still going to use a middleman for that, yep. whether it's Facebook or Google or somebody else in the future that we haven't even thought of yet, but they have some version of a direct interaction with that customer through a transaction. And that that's sort of primarily how they grew up because we think that's important to kind of learning to, to tell stories and learning how to develop products and to figure out how to fix their products, et cetera. It's like that quick iteration is only helpful and doable if you have a direct relationship. Yep. Um, but that second, you know, part of getting to scale is, is putting things in the physical world, whether that's through your own stores, through mixed use retailers, through department stores, we'll see if they exist, you know, through, through big box stores, you know, and depending on the category, different types of retail make sense for different folks. But yeah, I don't think that's going away. I, mm-hmm. I think people want both kinds of experiences um, for discovery, for touching and feeling things, for credibility's sake. And I think it's a, it's a brand's job to kind of show up in all the places that a customer could discover them or want to buy them from a, rep- a repetition standpoint. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think per- that'll change. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know you mentioned a couple of times, you know, customer experience brand. If you could just articulate that in the most simple principle way for the audience, what is a customer experience brand and like any pillars yeah. that associate with that? Yeah. I mean, so the five things I talked about before are, are the pillars. It's real positioning um, product that reflects the positioning building a storytelling engine that tells stories about the product and about the positioning. 
um, that you can figure out a cadence for. Mm-hmm. Um, number four is knowing and operating all the channels that are effective for your brand at once so that you're creating um, sort of this wave of storytelling. So every time you develop a story, knowing the channels that are effective for you, whether it's email or social or paid social or radio or PR and telling the same story through all of those channels all at once. So it feels like a wave to consumers. And then the fifth, the last thing is, um, is that they all exist both online and offline. Um, Mm -hmm. They don't have to on day one, but by, you know, (laughs) day 2000, they tend to have both offline and online experiences. Um, The way I think about this, um, just from a more macro perspective, is I grew up, you know, in the suburbs of Long Island, and our social network was the mall. Yeah. You know, we went to the mall um, to see our friends, to express what we liked and disliked, to connect with new people, et cetera, and to find brands and discover. Well, the the discovery was different. It was governed by the mall landlord. Uh (laughs) Um, The mall landlord and the brands decided which brands were going to be in which malls. The job of the store of each brand was sort of in, 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 you know, these things. It was number one, to attract me to the brand and to their windows through whatever was going on in the windows, usually mannequins dressed in clothes to go yep. to the clothing store. Once I was attracted and walked inside, they had to have somebody who reflected me or, or I related to kind of greet me. They had to have the clothes folded in a nice way on a table that made me want to walk up to it. Yeah. Once I got to the table, it had to be the right shape and the right color so that I would pick it up. And by now we're already on like the fourth thing, like window, welcome, you know, walking over to the table. I'm finally, you know, and 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 then liking the stuff on the table. And by, by the fourth or fifth thing, I'm picking the thing up. And only then does it matter that I like the way it feels in my hand, it fits me well and it looks cool. You know, it has a reason to exist on my body, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. You know, that world is a world that's driven by merchandising. Yeah. Uh, and so the people who matter the most are the ones who pick the right shapes and the right colors and who fold them in the right piles in the store. It was all different types of merchandising. Um, and that's reflected in the ads. The ads were pretty people in clothing picked by the merchandisers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reflected the brand. And what changed is that the mall no longer was the social network. The social network was the social network. And once the mall became infinite and shelving became infinite, it became less about a distribution advantage than it became about, you know, being able to tell stories in a way that attracted customers and then retained them through an emotional bond that you create with them. It became about storytelling. And once it became about storytelling and about consumers and having a dialogue with them, you had to build a brand that took the customer experience into account. And so to me, like, that's the biggest thing that the brands that we, you know, get to work with and, and the ones that are succeeding that, that they do well, it's that they're thinking about the customer and every single decision that they make, whether it's about product development and their product roadmap and the way they introduce products to the world, whether it's about the partnerships that they choose or the way they treat their employees or, you know, the way they show up in the physical world, you know, it, it's a million different things, their customer experience, their customer service um, team and the way they approach customer service, their actual customer journey, whether it's on their website and reflected in their digital product or in the, you know, in-person experience, like all like the, the best companies think about their customer journey and their customer experience at the center of everything they do. That's kind of what we mean about customer experience brands. 
Thanks for going into that in detail. I think that an analogy of the mall was is a perfect analogy. I think, or even if you look at I think a, pers- a company, it's not in the mall, but I think they do a tremendous job. Is Disney? When you walk into, mm. uh, you walk into a theme park, it's down to the trash can that it's it's all related to the experience that they're trying to deliver. But Disney is like, so this is why I think the direct consumer thing is 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 sort of a ridiculous premise. Like Disney's been direct to consumer forever, except through cable. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they've built a product and they sold it directly to people, but what they do amazing is they sell fantasy, right? They sell <laughs> like this childhood wonderment that adults have the ability to access. And Walt Disney's entire model, whether you're thinking about, and I go back to thinking about that sort of legendary graphic that he drew where everything's connected to the one, but it's all yep. driven by the positioning, by the IP, by the characters they create. And, you know, the products that create ladder up to that positioning, that fantasy, whether it's, you know, the Beauty and the Beast or the Lion King. And then the storytelling that they do through their product is through all the various channels, whether it's cruises or, um, mm-hmm. or, the, or the, the, the parks, the movies, the TV, the this, the that. It's yeah. like all of the various things that they do. I mean, it's incredible. But you think about brands like that, like Nike, like Patagonia, like brands that have just have done this for generations, Yeah, you know, and, you know, it's not so much that the brands of today have um, created something new. It's that they, you know, have used the, the internet and the building of a, a more intimate relationship with customers to be able to kind of do it in a different kind of newer way for other types of consumer brands that were sort yeah. of left in the dark. No, I I agree. I think that attention to detail, the kind of just thinking of the customer at all times is really going to deliver that amazing brand experience. So now looking into this, you know, current situation of COVID and it's looking like a lot of uh, money is also drying up in regards to investments, people's risk appetite is less. How do you think that's going to affect the the market as a whole? I think we're still seeing it shake out. Two broad things though. I, I think number one, we haven't seen a ton of changes at the early stage level. Mm-hmm. I know we're still writing checks out of our fund, Amity Supply, and you know we're still seeing a bunch of checks getting written. And so that candidly hasn't changed. Okay. Um, you know we have seen kind of the growth checks slow down or people get spooked, but what I actually think is just happening is sort of a retrenchment where you know even six months ago the founders had all of the leverage and people were begging to get into deals, and I just think that the folks with money are going to have more of the leverage and the prices and the deals are going to get better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it'll be a little bit harder to raise money and people are going to be frustrated, especially if they have dramatic need right now, because mm-hmm. they're going to get crappy terms. Yep. But there's plenty of money, you know, sitting, you know, in these funds and, and those guys have an obligation to invest that money over a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so investing is still going to happen. Yep. Do you think it's the requirements are going to change relative to the company's more profitability focused, still looking for growth? Where do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I, so that's sort of a frustrating, there's just a cyclicality to that. Mm-hmm. You know, we go through different phases in the world where people, investors are, are you know, less focused on profitability and more focused on growth. And we're, we were clearly even before this, um, going back to the other side and folks were focused on on profitability over growth. I mean, I, I just think it's sort of, you know, it, it goes around and around and mm-hmm. around and, and there there are cycles to this. I, you know, I think investors got spooked because there was a couple of bad companies that 
that failed, you know, in the consumer space, like there are in all sorts of other spaces and a couple of others who underwhelmed when they IPO'd mm-hmm. and it sort of put a damper on an entire category, which I think is, is, is fairly the wrong way to look about it. Yeah. You know, there's a ton of extremely strong companies in these categories that I think are going to be around for a really long time and mm-hmm. return, you know, return terrific returns for their investors. Yep. You know, it's just a kind of a run of bad luck with the companies that were out there. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's bad luck generally. But do you see with the checks that you're writing um, on the early stage, any changes in consumer behavior that they're keying in on particular insights as these new companies are emerging? No, I think, listen, I think the COVID crisis is going to accelerate certain behaviors in terms of the way people are buying. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most curious number that I've seen in the last week or so was that Amazon's market share has gone down. Right, like the pie of online buying has gone gotten much, much bigger. And clearly a lot of people are buying groceries at home more now than they were in the past, different cohorts are and other things. But I mean the numbers that I saw last week in the Times said that, you know, that Amazon's overall e commerce kind of share has gone down eight hundred basis points. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and you know, for for me, like that's an opportunity, you know. I've had you know, we have a sixteen month old daughter, we subscribe and save to various products that we consume for her diapers and baby wipes and all sorts of things. And they actually haven't fulfilled some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, these are things that we get on a monthly basis and have for 16 months, they have us hooked. Yeah. And you know, instead my wife has gotten emails from them being like, sorry, we just don't have baby wipes for you this month, mm-hmm. which is an odd thing to say to a customer that has you on subscription. Yep. And a baby wipe isn't something that is non-essential. Yeah. Wouldn't think, but I, who do I know? And and so I do think it's going to create opportunities. Yeah. You know, there are certain companies that have been around for a long time that are going to thrive. I think more people are getting more comfortable with different types of experiences and purchases online, and that will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, in the short term, there'll be kind of, uh, I'm sure, run on companies that are promoting thriftiness and things like that. Um, but the long tail of this is that customer behavior will revert back to the mean. In terms of the way they spend, it might take a year, it might take two or three years. That's first. The second is that this will accelerate some of the online trends. And the third is, is I, you know, I try to not let all the short-term stuff guide the decisions that we're making because I do think the world will return to some level of normalcy in the next couple of years. Okay. You know, I think that gives great insights on what's, what to look for in the next couple, couple months and years. Another thing that you mentioned on, or not mentioned, but it's on your pod, on your website, is this Project Mercury. If you could just describe that to the audience and kind of what you're trying to achieve with, with this project. Yeah, I mean, we're, so we're super close with the folks at Mythology. And we've worked with them for years and years, you know, on all sorts of different brands. And, and we came together with those guys, with Fernando, with, with Anthony last year to basically identify you know, one set of founders a year and to help them build their brand soup to nuts. So everything from naming and logo and word mark and all of the creative kind of identity of a brand, all the way up to the positioning work that we do and the strategy to get a brand launched, getting it off the ground, content, a million other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is to um, find founders who haven't been able to access the typical capital markets or don't want to access the typical, cap- typical, typical capital part- partners and want to use kind of a more creative way to get to market. And so we end up kind of getting in bed with them and being sort of co-founders. And so we're just in the earliest stages of doing this, you know, at this moment and, and hopefully news to come later this year. Okay. 
And any any brands have launched from that from that yet? No, I mean we just we just kind of announced it in January. Okay. Um, we're, you know we're getting close on a brand, but we had paused it for a second while this was going on until we can get back to some level of normalcy. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So as we're moving to the final questions, um, just pretty relatively quick questions. So we like to break down all our guests, you know, habits, routines, rituals that they have in their life that kind of push them to be successful on a daily basis or weekly basis, however the interval is. So what, what rituals, routines do you have in your life that kind of allow you to be sane day to day as you deal with um, all huh. the chaos? I, oh, man, um, I mean, I'm a highly habitual person. Uh-huh. I've built a lot of my life or I've tried to around minimizing commute time because uh-huh. <laughs> I don't want to spend my time commuting. Yeah. But for me, I, uh, I'm an early, so I go to bed at the same time every night. I wake up the same time every day. I have certain things that I read every morning when I wake up, both political news and business news and technology news. I like to work out three or four days a week. You know, I have a cup of coffee while I'm feeding my daughter in the morning. When she's up at seven in the morning. When she gets her bottle, I get a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. When life is a little bit more normal, I try to leave the office every day by 5.30 so I can be home um, to either watch my wife give uh, our daughter a bottle or to give her a bottle myself and to put her mm-hmm. to bed. You know, and, and for me, a, a lot of the rest of it is about kind of unplugging and finding time to, you know, to get quiet space. So, you know stopping email at a certain point, uh, not really sending emails on the weekends, finding time to read, you know, catharsis for me is cooking. So at least a few nights a week, although right now, six, seven nights a week, yeah, um, kind of cooking dinner and, and sitting and eating dinner as a family. But, but yeah, I'm a fairly ritualized person. I like to be prepared. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Is there any particular yeah. publications that you're reading on a daily basis that you'd recommend? Oh, I mean, in the, in the morning, I read Playbook, which is an email that Politico sends, and I read Axios AM, and I read Pro Rata, and I read Dealbook. You know, I, I get a Stratechery. Uh, I don't know. There's a ton of stuff at this point. Um, okay. You know, I love The New Yorker, by far my favorite magazine. I mean, I, I think for me, and I say this to our guys all the time, I'm a firm believer in being wide and not deep. Mm-hmm. that if you know a little bit about a lot of different things, you have the ability to connect those things in ways you're not even thinking about. Okay. And so the reason I love the magazine, like the New Yorker is I can, you know, obviously read about whatever's going on politically in the world or from a medical perspective in the world, but I can also read about, you know, diamond mining one week or yeah. surfing or something that I have no kind of thing about. And it's the connections between those things that is where creativity exists. Yeah, no, I, um, I agree. And, I, I don't yeah. know if you've had a, had a chance to read, but um, Range by David Epstein, it goes into yep. this this topic very, very well. So I, I definitely yeah. agree with that. It's a, it's a great book. I've recommended it to uh, a bunch of our interns and other folks in college. That sort of meandering path thing I described at the beginning, <laughs> like understanding that that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I think it is important, but but he talks about this a lot. I didn't quite realize that this was what I was doing until I had read research like his. That kind of all the reading that I do that has nothing—it's like a total non sequitur when it comes to my job or anything else that we're doing. That uh-huh. um, that's where creativity comes from. That it's connections between you know from one industry to another where you see kind of creativity born. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I agree with that. So just moving to the next question. What does personal care mean to you? 
personal you mean like in terms of shaving and stuff like you can take it however you want as a you know emotional emotional <laughs> type of context a category business category just how do you define it when you're when you look back at it oh fair all right that's a that's a broader way to ask it but what is personal care i mean to me just in the broadest possible context I think it's really important for people to contextualize the individual things they're experiencing in their life mm -hmm. because I, you know, what I like to say is there's no hill that you get to stand on and gaze at at the end. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way life works. Like life is the actual journey. Mm -hmm. And so you probably shouldn't hate it on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And so for me, like true personal care is being honest enough with yourself to try to find something to, that you're going to do repetitively that doesn't suck to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's different for every single person. But for me, it's, it's, it's trying to figure out the best possible way to enjoy the journey. Mm -hmm. I think that's a succinct way of putting it for sure. Uh, so next question, you said you're, have, you're like very menandering. You'll read one thing from another thing. What is the one thing right now that you're obsessed with learning more about right now? Now I'm obsessed with learning more about. I've been reading a lot. Well, two things. I've been reading. I've been reading Wolf Hall. I'm like super into like all the tutors and stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I finally got to that book, and so that's been sort of fascinating. I just the construction of it's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then honestly, Japanese kitchen knives. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you can go pretty deep once you start getting into them. There's a bunch of different sites where you can buy pretty directly from knife makers in Osaka and other parts of Japan. Yeah. Um, not directly, I mean, there's a, there's a middleman, but this, this, this site called Chef Knives to Go. If you ever want to spend a hundred hours learning about <laughs> Japanese um, cutlery, that's, yeah. that's your place. I've been doing a lot of that, yeah. honestly. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So just last question, what's one thing, whether professionally, you know, or non-professionally that you just like as a myth that's out there that you want to debunk? About myself or just in general? Just generally, you could be yourself, could be, could be about the industry you're in, it could be, you know, pathway, life philosophy, et cetera. What is one thing, one myth I'd like to dispel? I think for me, I, you know, I, I think for a lot of times, for a lot of the last 50 years, PR people have been sort of the the wicked bastard stepchildren of the marketing mix. Mm -hmm. You know, they were forever sat at the kids' table. They were seen, not heard. They were told what to do and expected to do it. Yeah. Um, and I think that one of the amazing things about what's going on right now is that the skill that we've all honed forever as our jobs, I call it the earned media mindset, this idea of how do you get somebody to click on something, whether directly or indirectly, metaphorically, whatever, without having the ability to pay them to do it yeah that that mindset is king right now you know that obviously you know pr is pr and telling stories that reporters will care about is this is, is pretty similar as it's always been a little, little different but the way social works the way direct response ads works even the way out of home works and partnerships and all these other things reflects that mindset yeah and so i i would say like the the biggest myth is that PR people are stupid and that people who grew up in PR are stupid. You know, I think sure there's plenty of stupid PR people like there are in any industry, yep. but it's this mindset that's governing the customer experience right now. And to me, it's the more valuable of the mindsets out there in the marketing mix at the moment. Okay. 
Okay, that's that's a good one. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. Really appreciate it. If listeners wanted to connect with you or Darius and company, um, where should they look? Honestly, they could just go to our website, which is www.darius.com. And I still get to see the info email. So just email the info address at Darius and it'll end up on my desk. All right. Thank you so much. Again, thank you so much, Jesse. Thanks for having me.